in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, sir. It's not beautiful. It's cloudy and rainy, typical Pittsburgh (laughs) December weather, but uh, you know what's going to cheer me up at this time? What's that, Russell? Uh, First time guest. We've got a great one here. Meet... Lindsay Washburn. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> so, Lindsay, tell people at home where you're from and like where we can find out more about you and your efforts. Well, I'm from Iowa, born and raised, Midwest gal. And I have a YouTube channel called Lindsay Washburn. That's Lindsay with an A. And I review movies and talk about movies and talk about my extensive VHS collection. All right, our kind of person. What was your first VHS <laughs> out of curiosity? Like, what, what was the one that started it all? Oh, my gosh. Probably uh, the the pre-special edition Star Wars was probably the first time when I actively went out to search for a VHS tape. Oh, do you still have those? I have, like, three copies of each of oh them. Oh, my goodness. Those are worth so much now because that's the... Uh... The edits before George Lucas went nuts. Yes. And I mean, you can pick them up pretty cheap. If you find them at a secondhand store, they, they run around maybe $10, $15. So you can still you can still snap them up for just a little bit of money. So George Lucas hasn't snatched them all up and destroyed them all? No, he has not taken a hammer to every single copy of them yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lindsay, uh, what is the last movie that you saw just out of curiosity? Uh, I live in a small town, so I did go to the theater. I was the only one in the theater, so I was safe with all the COVID precautions going on. And I saw Fat Man starring Mr. Mel Gibson and uh, Walton Goggins, which is kind of like a dark comedy uh, Christmas film. (laughs) How was it? It was actually very fun and enjoyable. They don't take themselves very seriously. It's very uh, B-movie grindhouse reminiscent but it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun yeah that sounds i i i'm I, my head is not in what's been in theaters lately so i'm i'm, I'm admittedly uh diving more into older movies than ever before this year so mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, chad what about you what's your last movie my last movie was freaky with vince vaughn it's also out in theaters right now it's a freaky friday body swap but with a serial killer so almost like Freaky Friday meets the Child's Play franchise. It was interesting, and Vince Vaughn did a good job. I think he's uh, he's on par with Jack Black of switching bodies with teenage girls and doing teenage girls things. Okay, that's a, high praise. A la Jumanji. Yep. Yeah. My last one was Pet Cemetery from 2019. Uh, actually, I believe this is one of the videos that you have reviewed on your channel there, Lindsay. 
Yes, I, I did a comparison between the original and the remake. Took several points from each and compare, compared and contrasted and, and, and tried to figure out who did what better. Yes. Uh, without giving too much away, I... I am solidly in your corner on that one. So, <laughs> so uh, if you're wondering which one of the ones I like better, you'll have to go check out Lindsay's video and then you'll figure it out. <laughs> so, Chad, what movie are we doing today, sir? We are doing 1975's Jaws. That's right. Jaws stars Roy Scheider. I always thought it was Schneider, but it's, it's just Roy Scheider. Uh, Robert Schull, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gray. Uh, it's budgeted was about $9 million, but it made $193 million in the box office box office. Mojo even has it up at 260 million. I'm guessing this is subsequent re-releases that up that upset number. Mm-hmm. The number, it came in number one, in the box office on that year ahead of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So it, <laughs> check uh, out that episode. It was gonna say, so if you want to hear about one flew over the cuckoo's nest, we released an episode on that earlier this year. Um, IMDB gives jaws an 8.0. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it 98%, and the audience score seems low on this, 90%, so, uh, for Jaws. It's nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Editing, Best Dramatic Score, and Best Sound, and it, uh, sorry, it uh, won those three, and then it was nominated for Best Picture, where it lost to the One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and, uh, which Spielberg resented heavily. So that that was interesting. And then it won a Grammy Award and a BAFTA for John Williams' score as well. And AFI was kind to this as well. The 100 Years of Movies gives it, sorry, it was 48th when the first time AFI made their top 100 movies. And it was 57 when they came back and revisited 10 years later. That's quite a drop. AFI gives us the number two on the most thrilling movies of all time. And it gives it number six on film scores of all time. So... The American Film Institute loves it. And uh, the impact is this was supposed to be one of those. This is a dead time of year. This comes out in the summer. It was supposed to come out on Christmas. And it ends up smashing the box office. It was a true blockbuster where people were waiting around the block to get in. People typically enjoyed outdoors. And this was just not a time of year where you saw a movie like this. But with proper marketing, it, uh, you know, over six, uh, 67 million people in the U.S. went to see this film. And uh, when it initially landed in 1975, so I mean, it uh, it just made a, it blew up screens everywhere. So, Lindsay, had you seen Jaws before? And if so, what was it like the first time you saw it? I probably saw Jaws the first time when I was maybe six years old. <laughs> wow, that's pretty young. I like was yes, and uh, uh, I have seen it countless times since then. And I'm a little biased on this film because it is my number one favorite film of all time. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a um, fine choice. Yeah, when you, when you asked me for like three suggestions, I was just going to put Jaws, Jaws, Jaws. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I, I watch it a couple times a year. It is absolutely my favorite film. Um, I rewatched it last night. I think this is my probably my third watching, third or fourth watching of this year. And since I watched it at such a young age, you know, when I was very young, it just scared the crap out of me, you know, um, with the visual visuals and the suspense. And it was all about the blood and everything. But as I continued to watch it, as I got older, I got to appreciate more of the filmmaking techniques and the acting and everything else that went into the production of it. So it's kind of my appreciation for it has grown as I have grown. 
you can enjoy this movie on different levels for sure. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. And uh, Chad, what about you? Had you seen Jaws before? I had. Same age, too. And uh, really poor setting for it to happen. I can distinctly remember this. We took beach vacations all the time when I was a kid. And and so people would leave VHS tapes. Uh, if you don't know what those are, check out Lindsay's channel. But uh, yeah, we we watched this at the beach which is a fantastic age and setting to watch Jaws for the first time. Uh, it certainly had an impact on my willingness to go into the ocean for that trip. But you know what? I still liked it, and I've caught it countless times since then. It's one of those movies shows up on TV. If I change the channel and find it, yep, sitting down watching Jaws. Guess that's what I'm doing for the evening. Well, yeah, so I did not get this at age six. My parents were a little more discriminating on the, on the uh, when, when I got it, but my dad was always a big fan of it, and uh, he was at the beach when it came out, actually. So uh, he said there was a noticeable number of people not getting in the water the next day when he was at the <laughs> beach in Florida. So, uh, you know, he said at the time, like, yeah, it, it your experience, Chad, affected full-grown adults even, so... Uh, he did not say the mayor went around telling people get in the water, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, I got this one more like around age 14 and, uh, I, I was hooked right away and, uh, my mom got me Jaws two, three, and four subsequently. And, uh, those are not as good. No, no oh. they are not. <laughs> it gets steadily and steadily worse. Still enjoyable, but in very, very different ways. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say you can. I I can have fun with them, and I I have gone back and watched all of them again. But uh, Jaws one is a spectacular movie and a great piece of cinema. In fact, so much so we had somebody from our office who was from India. She grew up with no American movies, and she had just everything was first time for her as she was taking it in as an adult. And we made a we made a list of movies for her, and so everybody put one movie that represents American cinema on there, which most people just put their favorites on there. But uh, mm -hmm. you know, I was looking down through there, and I said. Uh, Jaws. Jaws has got to be on there. It's like the original summer blockbuster. And, right. Um, that was my contribution on there. This was a tricky movie. I mean, we we looked at the list that our guests submitted, Lindsay, and we said, uh, we can't not pick Jaws. It was, <laughs> it was chum in the water for us. Right. <laughs> we, should, we should pick something else and expand, but you can't not pick Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you can be pushing 100 episodes and have it had not come up yet, but well, I'm very, I was very happy that you guys hadn't talked about it yet because I haven't talked about it on my channel really yet. So I'm, I was very excited when you said we're doing Jaws. Yes. So we're going to spoil Jaws. We're going to get into it here after this advertisement. So we will be back after this and spoilers lie ahead. If you have not seen Jaws, definitely watch it and enjoy the rest of this episode. Do you love sci-fi, horror, and fantasy films? Then grab a badge for Otherworlds Film Festival, the country's premier sci-fi film festival. There'll be Q&As, panels, parties, and mixers. Rub elbows with up-and-coming and established filmmakers, as well as like-minded filmgoers. Come celebrate our seventh year, December 3rd through 6th, at the Galaxy Highland in Austin, Texas. Badges are now for sale at otherworldsfilmfest.com. That's otherworldsfilmfest.com. And we're back. Chad, for those who haven't seen Jaws since 1975, do you want to give people a refresher? Grossly overestimating the age of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing, though. Amity Island is a small community who relies on summer beach traffic to survive. 
when the new sheriff Brody, played by Roy Schneider, uh, Schneider, now Russell's got me doing it, uh, <laughs> discovers the remains of a young woman who was the victim of a shark attack. He pushes to close the beaches despite the economic impact. The town's mayor refuses to close the beaches because this is America and instead offers $3,000 to anyone that can kill the shark. Well, that doesn't go swimmingly. You see what I did there, Russell? I do. <laughs> and so an oceanographer named Hooper, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, arrives and a contract is given to Quint, played by Robert Shaw, and Quint has experience hunting sharks. Brody, Hooper, and Quint hunt down the Great White, responsible for the attacks, but soon find out that they're outmatched. Hooper is attacked while in a diving cage and retreats to an underground cove. Quint isn't so lucky and becomes a shark snack. Clinging to the sinking orca, Brody desperately shoots at a scuba tank that's become lodged in the beast's mouth and at the last second hits the tank and the shark explodes in a rain of gore. Brody and Hooper reunite and begin kicking their way back to shore. They should have brought a bigger boat. <laughs> Lindsay, let's talk about the story here a little bit. This is kind of a two-act kind of performance yes. here where the first half is on land and the second half is all on sea. How does that uh, transition kind of go down for you? It's one of those things I hadn't actually noticed until I was really paying attention to it this time. I, th I think they transition to it well because as the action goes on, it becomes more and more personal to the the three main actors. From what I understood from the production um, points of it, you know, they had so much trouble doing stuff out in the water. But as far as the plot progression and everything like that, this is an adventure movie on top of being a thriller. So you have to have that adventure aspect. And that is what I think we get with that second part that's out on the water. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think it turns into an adventure movie in the back half. The first half is kind of a suspenseful, mm -hmm. I mean, like it has horror drama elements going on. So yes. I never noticed how there's like two movies within the movie of Jaws. And you're right. Spielberg does a good job of turning the corner on that mm -hmm. quite well. You know what? This starts how I request almost all of my horror movies to start. And I want to see Nameless Teenager Die. And to exercise the power of whatever they're up against. And Jaws delivers it. And man, this is a movie where it's, we're killing dogs, we're killing children. <laughs> Shark don't care. And that's fantastic. I mean, this is nature's apex killing machine. Mm -hmm. You know, kudos to Steven Spielberg for not shying away from eating a kid that's swimming on a raft and having a just fountain of gore come up. <laughs> it's true. It's this, true. I don't know that you'd do that today. Like, I don't think that would get through test audiences today. Yes. Yeah, probably so, not. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone's going to shy away unless... Especially not with a, a PG rating. No, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's a different time. That, that opening scene, I don't remember as well because I've seen it on TV so much. I haven't seen the actual DVD anything else I'm like oh wait they're actually fully stripping okay but, <laughs> but yeah I, I love the dynamic of the the drama with especially Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus, which you know as we'll talk about later I'm sure came through real life drama between the two but you know there there's great tension there 
and just the characters are so well done there are little touches like Brody knocking over a bunch of pins in a convenience store it's like just just little things that you don't think to do but you're introducing these nuances to the character that make them feel a whole lot more real you get very familiar with them yep and that lends itself to why someone would rewatch this movie keep coming back to it over and over again it, there's a lot of richness in the town. The characters do feel very real. The situation feels very real. And honestly, here we were talking about pandemic stuff. There's a lot of parallels in this movie, in the first oh, half of this gosh, movie, yes. to where we are now. It, 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 it's, you know, there's uh, there's this threat. And then the mayor, the person in charge, is saying, like, it's not a big deal. Everybody's happy. Business is important. Do you have any idea how much money we'll lose? And, you know, then you have other people who are more trained and saying, like, you're not handling this seriously. And so mm -hmm. I actually thought one of the reasons you picked this, I wasn't even curious. I was just like, wow, <laughs> as I was sitting there watching this, I was sitting there going like, did you just pick this? Because it's like 2020 and like this is like where we are now. Well, I mean, there have been a lot of uh, uh, memes going around about the, the mayor of Jaws with everything going on. It, it wasn't why I picked it, but there are extraordinary parallels between what goes on in the movie and what we're dealing with right now as far as the pandemic. Right. Yeah. And we're just coming off of Wreck, which is very quarantine-esque. So we've got economic shutdown and we've got quarantine so if you'd like some parallels i'd like to say we put this much thought into the movies every week but we don't <laughs> no we we are a simple podcast and this is happy coincidence <laughs> we just said big shark good <laughs> and that, that's true i mean like um it still functions well at, as sharks eating people as obviously they could make three more movies of just that so <laughs> and in 3d are... Uh, there are perfect like the the karen stereotype this stuck out to me and it's never stuck out before uh, when they're in the meeting talking about shutting down in 24 hours and sh there's a lady in the back that just yells 24 hours it's like three weeks that's one of my favorite <laughs> lines in the movie and just, just all like, the different the different townspeople shouting out their little opinions yes it's like that is happening right now <laughs> But Mayor Vaughn is like the actual, the biggest monster in it, though. I mean, the shark, mm -hmm. the shark's a killing machine. It, like you said, sharks don't care. That's their job. They eat. They, they need snacks. So, um, <laughs> but uh, the mayor is such an interesting kind of antagonist character. Right down to his anchor jacket. There's nothing you like about <laughs> this guy. Oh, I love that jacket, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Evidently, they just found that in a local thrift shop or something. I believe it. Perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that it was like, hmm, what can we do to make this character more dislikable? <laughs> I found this jacket. Perfect. <laughs> Russell and his George Romero takes. With, before we thought people might sympathize with him, but now, now nobody will like him. <laughs> yeah. You and your George Romero takes. The people were the real monsters all along. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And we kind of alluded to this um, it, as they go into the shark hunt, the tone of the movie shifts and it's uh, it's exciting, but also wildly fun. And that tension that they built up in the first half gives way. And it's a lot mm -hmm. of fun. I mean, Lindsay, like which half of these movies do you actually find yourself liking more when you stop and think about it? 
Um, there is a ton of stuff in the first half that I enjoy from a filmmaking aspect and acting and just some of the special effects and more suspenseful scenes I really enjoy. But the second half for me really makes the film because we get these three characters on the boat, isolated from everyone else, and we really see the dynamic between them, and we see their characters grow and their relationships with each other grow, and there's there's a lot more shark action. <laughs> there is, yeah. <laughs> so I like the dynamic, like you said, between the three characters so much. It was mm-hmm. interesting to see how Quint and Hooper in particular didn't like each other. Yes. It was old versus new, because everybody keeps mm-hmm. calling Hooper a kid. He's the oldest looking young person and like, I mean, everyone's like, get out of here, kid. I'm like, I mean, Dreyfus is a good actor. I'm glad they got him. But I did keep sitting there wondering, it's like, how young is he written in the book? <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's new versus old. It's academic versus like laborer. So you like yes. Cooper's like a like scholarly man. And like Quint mm-hmm. looks down upon him as like this guy up in an ivory tower. It's rich versus working class. Yeah. Hooper's got all these high tech. He's very much tech technology to do what he does has all these little tools and tricks and quint is very much more rudimentary old school you know just do it with the brawn and (laughs) not so much uh leaning on science to to do uh, what he does he leans on his instincts yeah yeah and it's interesting how brody's like this bridge that they both they both seem to respect Mm -hmm. him as, as as like he's kind of in the middle yeah and he's he's really who the audience identifies with. He's the audience's window into this story. Yes. I did I did really like the scene where Quint asks for Hooper's hands and he starts feeling <laughs> them. And he's just like, no calluses. These are these are academic hands. These aren't working hands. He's been counting money all his life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always wondered though, like how does Quint hard on him and then not hard on like Brody? Cause Brody, like we saw like the kind of police station that he has to work in. It looks like it's a house and people are coming in going like, you got the ninth graders coming in and karate chopping <laughs> the fences. Right. Yeah. Can you go oversee the Boy Scout swimming? like oh it's this kind of town yes i think their relationship uh, drives from that uh he does not see brody as a threat at all to what he's trying to do he point. sees hooper as competition conflicting ideas where brody's there just to kind of observe and do what quint says and to uh sign that check <laughs> that's true yeah uh, you, you like people who will give you money a lot more oh yeah first- <laughs> I do wonder, does Brody get the check at the end? Like, how does that work? Does he get the reward? <laughs> I'm assuming yeah. the mayor actually comes out of this pretty well. Like, maybe there's a cut scene that was in bad taste. The mayor's like, wait, they killed the shark and he died and I don't have to pay him? Fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're tragically right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Brody's like, did you not hear what I said? They died. No, yeah, it was terrible. It's terrible. But they did waste a couple good cases of apricot brandy, so. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's not all good news then. <laughs> so what makes this movie work as an overall, though? Like like you said, you're having fun. You enjoy these characters. It's the depth, but also it, the scare is there. What is it? that's working here is it the story or is it more of how spielberg is putting this thing together Lindsay, what's the magic recipe that doesn't seem to be reduplicable no i mean they had so many production issues with this film and i think 
a majority of the success of this film is due to those production issues that they faced. I mean, with the shark breaking down over and over and over again. So they had to come up with these ways to show that the shark was there without actually showing the shark. Because, like, the original plan was to show the shark from the beginning. And I think that would have completely ruined all the suspense and everything leading up to those final, that final act. And the fact that they were still writing the script as they were shooting it. And Spielberg has always said that it was a very, it's the most collaborative script writing that he's ever done. Because, I mean, Roy Scheider contributed, Robert Shaw contributed, especially with specific scenes. So I think this was just kind of a comedy of errors that resulted in just a, a near perfect film. <laughs> I think you're right. Believable threat and strategic mm -hmm. use of what you do and do not see, I think, are big, yeah. big parts of this. And good acting, too. Very good acting. Yeah. By chance, Ted, either one of you looked up, there's a book that goes with this. Have you guys either dove into the source material on this at all? I have not. I have read the book. It was quite a while ago. I do know some of the major changes that were made. Well, the first big one is that Hooper dies <laughs> and that he's also having an affair with Brody's wife because they had known each other previously. And then there was also um, the mafia was involved with some of the the dealings going on on the island and were entangled with the mayor. And that is why there was so much pressure to keep the beaches open was because they had this mob influence behind it. Yeah. And Spielberg actually said, and you're 100% right about all of that, Lindsay. Like Spielberg said that when he read the novel, he didn't enjoy it very much. And he found no. himself rooting for the shark because right? <laughs> all of the characters were so unlikable. Uh, very unlikable even brody was unlikable like his mm -hmm. wife cheats on him because like there's a drifting apart between the two of them they mm -hmm. argue all the time and it's like yeah it's not like this like spielberg repaints that family dynamic yes. to make you mm -hmm. like him and so nobody in the novel is likable i'm not saying don't read peter benchley benchley's uh novel but you're gonna get a very different experience if that's something yes. you do <laughs> spielberg even went as far to say as don't read this. Like, there's no point in reading it. So, yeah, I did. That was his advice to the actors. Like, don't I don't know how common book. that is. <laughs> uh, talking about great acting, though, Lindsay, what do you think about this great cast as a whole? I I think especially the three main leads were impeccably cast, and I don't I don't think any of them were the original choices, except for maybe Hooper, because I think they went through probably several seven to eight different choices for Quint and then a few different choices for Brody. Originally Char Charlton Heston wanted to play Brody <laughs> at one point, but Spielberg very much wanted to go with, you know, no big, huge actors. But I think the casting of Robert Shaw as Quint is the big one that really, really made the film. Get your fins off me, you done dirty shakes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just cannot imagine him as as being the 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 meek, clumsy, small town sheriff. And that's what Chief. Spielberg said. Like he he thought that Heston, like if if this if Heston was up going up against the shark, the shark stood no chance. So stood no yeah. chance. <laughs> well, even Roy Scheider, the same thought of he comes off the French Connection. He's like, hey, he's he's kind of a tough guy, and that I don't know that he's going to work. I feel like he was looking for Rick Moranis. 
and just <laughs> <laughs> wasn't on the radar at the time. Yeah, but uh, in a biography, Spielberg revealed that Robert Duvall had encouraged him to make the movie, and in returning, Spielberg offered Duvall the role of Brody as well. So Robert Duvall is another one of those people, as Lindsay mentioned, a number of people get kicked around for this one. But Spielberg told him he was too young. I feel like Robert Duvall always looks old, so I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I still love Richard Dreyfuss's. He refused the part initially, and then he sees an early screening of another movie he did, and he's like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to get any work ever again if this... <laughs> so he immediately calls Spielberg and is like, you know what, never mind, I'll take the part. <laughs> please, please give me this role. I would like a career, please. Uh, one of my favorite stories Roy Scheider talks about was uh, he gets he gets slapped in one, one of these scenes when Mrs. Kenter, the boy who son gets eaten on the raft and she finds out that the police knew that there had been a first victim and they didn't close down the beaches and so she's mad and she slaps him and Roy Scheider had to do 17 takes of getting slapped he said uh, it was the most painful acting job of his career <laughs> yeah Jeffrey Voorhees was the kid yes Alex Kenter there's a fun story about that if I'm not mistaken the boy who plays Jason Voorhees is... Jeffrey Voorhees. Jason is a very different franchise. You're right, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Jeffrey Voorhees ends up owning a restaurant. And yes. the woman who plays Mrs. Kenter walks into that restaurant and um, orders the Alex Kenter sandwich. And she said that I played his mother in a movie and somebody went back in the kitchen. And he came out and said, uh, you know, I own the restaurant and I played. And so the two reconnected decades later in this restaurant. And uh, I think that's a really fun little small world kind of... Uh, story yeah yeah that yeah because she, she was just a local actress that they found to play that role and she did wonderfully yep yep and but even up to nine days before the start of production quint nor hooper had been cast mm. and that's amazing to me that you can get it so <laughs> right and be that, that up against it so procrastinators rejoice you can get away with that i guess <laughs> it was a very different time the the woman that played Christy, Susan Backlony, she got the part by sending nude pictures of herself to the crew. Like, <laughs> that's an audition, I guess. Well, and she also had a couple pluses going for her. I mean, because they obviously needed someone very attractive, but they also needed someone who could do the physicality of the role. And she was an animal trainer and stunt woman. And was also, you know, willing to get naked on screen. <laughs> and so they could, you know, they wouldn't have to use a stunt double. They could they could have the actual stunt woman actress having those, you know, reactions in the water as the stunts are happening. And and so the it was she just kind of she had everything they were looking for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you were also mentioning that Quint had had several different iterations as well. Lee Marvin was the director, um, was director Steven Spielberg's first choice, I should say, and uh, for the role of Quint. And he had several reservations about using big name actors and Marvin thanked him and replied that he would rather go fishing than work on this movie. <laughs> so, I mean, this seems like a painful movie to turn down, but it's one of those things where you, all the cast members even said, like, we didn't know we were making a classic movie. Like they thought this was going to be kind of schlocky. It's amazing that you could think that while doing this. So, <laughs> well, and also as the you know, the shoot got longer and the budget exploded, I'm sure their doubts grew and grew. <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. And so Spielberg wanted Sterling Hayden for the role of Quint, but Hayden was, uh, you know, wanted for internal revenue service, unpaid tax issues. But ironically, in diving into Robert Shaw, they got into some of that anyway, where he had to be flown to Canada because <laughs> like, days off. <laughs> yeah, on his days off, because if he spent too many days in the United States, the tax problems would kind of come into. I guess Hollywood actors don't like to pay their taxes. Looking at you, uh, uh-uh. Wesley Snipes and Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Emma Watson. Oof. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he didn't make any money from this. It all went to the IRS. Yeah. Yes, and he doesn't live a lot longer after this anyway. So. No, he. It was like three or four years after it came out that he passed away. But he was such a phenomenal actor. I mean, the producers had previously worked with him on The Sting, where he did. I love that movie. That's another great, great film. And he's great at playing the villain and playing that antagonistic type of personality. And, I mean, he comes from a, an infamous and, and very storied career in the theater. But just the way that uh, he comes from that long line of uh, drunken English Shakespearean actors. And he was drunken. Yes, he was. I like the story of... Him saying, I wish I could stop drinking and Richard Dreyfuss just grabbing the drink and tossing it in the ocean and him getting insanely ticked off. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Why is the rum gone? <laughs> <laughs> right? That did mess up a lot of the shooting, though. Like, he called Spielberg and apologized. Indian USS Indianapolis story. He did it, I guess, hammered and called that night to apologize and then did the performance that made it into the film after asking for a second chance. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yep. You know, it was tension not only with Dreyfus, particularly with Dreyfus, but with other people as well. I mean, Roy Scheider was saying, like, he, you know, he was a perfect gentleman when he was sober. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, all it took was one drink, and he turned into a very difficult personality <laughs> to work with. Even Richard Dreyfus said, you know, when they were off the set, he was perfectly kind and funny and jovial but as they were driving to the set a troll would like possess him he said (laughs) he would just get more and more cantankerous yeah the stories of like go ahead jump off the 75 foot mast (laughs) i'll pay you a thousand i'll pay you two thousand whatever and he kept escalating and spielberg had to intervene and be like under no circumstance are you jumping off my boat yeah, and he was like, I bet you can't do 20 push-ups. And, you know, like, I mean, look at you. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I forget which actor it was. Like, once somebody dies, you know, you might make it in this business as like a, you know, quirky Jewish character actor, you know, mm-hmm. and like, yeah. like just constantly sticking it to him, like, you know, like on his acting, on his physique, <laughs> on his age, which, by the way, why is everybody picking on him on his age? He looks so old for his age. <laughs> Everyone back then looked older than their age. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So let's talk about Spielberg. I mean, he's a big part of the magic here, Lindsay. What do you think about Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg here and early Spielberg, I might add? Well, I mean, there are a ton of parallels between this and uh, the film he did, Duel, which is another great, great film. You know, this was the, the, the first big project he did. He did Sugarland Express before this that didn't do very well at all. But just the, the constant daily pressure that he was under as they were, you know, going over 
over a shooting schedule and way over budget and threat of being fired every single day and shooting on the open water, which really had never done, been done before. And the shark not working and, you know, him and, uh, is it Carl Gottlieb would, would go back to their little cabin on the island every night and, and work on the script for what they were doing the next day. I can't imagine the stress that that man was under <laughs> to, to try and finish this film. And I'm surprised that he didn't have a nervous breakdown <laughs> trying to get this film finished. Yeah. We've covered Spielberg later with like movies like Jurassic Park and E.T. Mm -hmm. And he's got his feet under him. And even, oh, yeah. the, even these ambitious projects, you are sitting there going like, man, how does he do it all? Well, I mean, I think right. a lot of it comes from paying his dues in Jaws. It didn't oh, yeah. go well. It did cause a problem. It didn't get done on time. And he adapted and made a great movie, possibly even better with some of the constraints that came his way. Mm -hmm. Because out of the constraints bred great creativity. Yes, it did. And you can also see those little magical Spielbergian moments, especially some of the quieter personal scenes. One of my favorite scenes um, that is very, very uh, Spielberg, as you know, with that came along with his later films, is when Brody and his son are sitting at the dinner table. You know, after he he just been slapped by uh, Kittner's mom, so he's very much at his lowest at that point. And the, the little kid is, you know, mimicking his gestures, his hand gestures and then he says give us a kiss and the little kid says why and he says because we need it I, I love that scene that's it's very touching and it, it, it and that's one of those other scenes that elevates this film beyond just a, a monster movie it, it's a great scene very warm mm -hmm. very warm and touching they use a lot of callbacks to that and i believe it's mm -hmm. the revenge of jaws mm -hmm. yeah it's the best scene in that movie too <laughs> I like naive young Spielberg and he talks about being naive and how he probably should have shot this in a Hollywood tank instead of the ocean, but that he, he was just arrogant and uh, I think he was 26, 28, something like that when he was shooting this and he was determined I'm going to do it on the ocean and then found out, oh, that's probably a bad idea. Really hard, I'm gonna, really hard to control. I'm going to create this super realistic shark. Oh, wait, it kind of looks ridiculous. It doesn't work very well. Well, maybe I, I retool the movie so less is more. And just like I wasn't on Alien, but you know, you guys drum this in and it's very true of Jaws. Less is more. Less is more. You, you're much more afraid of a shark that you don't see that's pulling in barrels that you're being told is a big problem than you are of when Bruce actually well, the first appearance is meant as a jump, jump scare, but past that, it's like, okay, big shark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot did go wrong in this movie. A whole lot went wrong, largely with the shark. But I mean, yes. uh, even even before they got it on the water, I thought there was really an interesting story where Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and uh, were visiting Bruce the shark in, <laughs> in construction. Uh, uh, John Milius was there as well. And, uh, they, you know, Spielberg had stuck and uh, snuck off to the controls while George Lucas was like looking up in the mouth to see how it worked. And he closed the mouth uh, thinking it was going to be funny. And then it didn't reopen. So <laughs> George Lucas was stuck in the shark's mouth. He got out eventually. But, uh, you know, but then like they, they thought they broke it. So then they all like ran out of like the machine shop. Like, you know, like, 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 it's a pretty funny thing for the director to be doing. Like, I think I broke it. We need to leave. We need to leave now. <laughs> 
That was the inspiration for the space slug in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I'm completely making that up. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, and also never testing it um, in salt water because they had to completely retool all of the, the innards that, you know, the hydraulics and everything to, to work in salt water because they had tested it in freshwater tanks and salt water just eats everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I still love that he named it Bruce after his lawyer. Like, <laughs> what a great thing. It's, it's kind of like a Kirby. Kirby's named after Nintendo's lawyer that helped save their franchise from the uh, King Kong lawsuit. But yeah, going to name my giant shark after my lawyer. <laughs> but to your point, it, the machine didn't work and it sank to the ocean floor. And yes, Marsh's Vineyard was chosen because it's more shallow for a longer way out there, which is why they chose it. The town was great for the movie as well, I might add. That was another thing that Spielberg had to have real. There are no sets in this. It's all real places. Yeah. But I think that pays great dividend. I'm, I think highly of when a director does do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it was an uphill battle in the ocean. And when they have to sit there and have divers, you know, go down there to retrieve it. <laughs> that's a that's a that's <laughs> this is not what you want as a director. You don't budget time and contingency for these kinds of like major failures. And also there was another instance where uh, they were the orca sank. So one yeah. of one of the they use these ropes to pull the boat to make it rock left and right. And I guess one of the anchor points in this old boat ripped out a hole in the <laughs> boat, and all of a sudden it was filling up with water. And they lost sound equipment and a camera reel even went into it. And they, so they lost film in that. But amazingly enough, they were actually able to save that because apparently there was like a developing solution of saline. That was like a mm -hmm. salty solution that they uh, used to put that into. And then they flew it to New York and like lab technicians worked to recover that film. And they actually could use some of that film. But again, that's just another one of these big errors that comes from shooting in the untamed ocean yeah because i mean setting up a shot at alone takes time and trying to do it out on the open ocean when you've got how many different boats anchored you've got the giant barge that housed all of the controls and everything for the shark and by the time that everything would be ready you know the sun would move to a different position or the tide would move the anchors so everything was you know, not looking the right way. So it was just a whole host of problems and whole days would be scrapped where they would just get nothing. Yep. And one of my favorite things occurs, if you look for this after the shark bangs into the orca and it's rocking, mm -hmm. there's a red streak that goes behind Brody's head. It's like a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, like they, they couldn't control all of this stuff. And then they, there's another scene where it cuts back to his face again and you can still see it. It's a shooting star, but... It, it's a distracting, like, what's that red line? <laughs> and Spielberg's next movie was Close Encounters, so maybe he was uh, creating the Spielbergian extended universe. <laughs> Chad, there, there are a lot of them. Like, are there any fun failure stories on this one? I think for me, it's the, it's not so much a failure, but Spielberg admits he got greedy when he's doing test shots, and the original test shot was or test screening, there was a big scream for Jaws when he first appears. And huge scream, biggest scream in the movie. Then he added Ben Gardner, and that, that jump scare, and he said that became the biggest scare of the movie, and he noticed there was a diminishment of 
scream because he said audience became on guard and when the shark appeared. And so Ben Gardner became the big scare of the movie. And he said, eh, I think I got a little greedy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Lindsay, you mentioned earlier that Hooper was set to die in the novel. Yes. Did you, did you know that he was set to die as well in the movie? Yes. Yes. And that's one of my favorite stories about the film because they had the husband and wife team. I can't remember their names. I think it was, their last name was Taylor, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And they were getting all the live shark footage down in Australia, but they were only encountering like, you know, 15, 16 foot great whites, which are still huge, but not jaws huge. So they constructed a, a smaller replica version of Hooper's cage and put a little person in it. But the shark started attacking the cage and the little person actually had like some heart problems. And also they put a smaller tank on there and, but you know, little people breathe the same way that, um, that we do. So he only had about eight minutes of air. So they pulled him out of the cage and then this 16 foot great white gets hung up on the cage and they get this spectacular, spectacular live shark footage of this great white just caught up in the cage and destroying it and flipping around on top of it. And they are so excited that they got this amazing footage and they send it, send it off to be seen by the producers. And they're like, where's Hooper in the cage? And they're like, oh, he's not in there. And so this footage was too great not to use. So in the end, they 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 let Matt Hooper live. <laughs> yeah, they shot him like f- swimming down into the rocks. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That uh, and I like it better that way. Me too. I do too. So that's so often it is the case. All of these oopsies made the movie right? better. It's just it's yes. so uncommon to see this many errors and this many frustrations turn out so well. And Spielberg was talking about that he was frustrated himself and like you said he it was it was a very nerve-wracking process for him but um when the shark didn't work and these other things happened he said i had no choice but to figure out how to tell the story about Mm -hmm. a shark without the shark it's what we don't see this truly frightening he realized he went back to hitchcock influences and he kept the camera above the water and what you don't see spielberg said is below the water and then that is what's scary you show the effects of its destruction you show that it kills people you show moments and glimpses of its force it can rip a whole dock off and drag mm-hmm. it around it had like chad said the barrels was a brilliant idea to track how fast mm-hmm. this thing could move and that was the result of not having a good machine shark which by the way when it does show up it's bad like they move <laughs> they move so well in the movie that you don't notice it when you're watching the movie but if you look on Google for a picture of the shark. It It's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Um, there is great credit to the editing in this film because you don't see the shark. It, it seems like you see a lot of the shark, especially towards the end, but you really don't, especially those close-up shots and underwater shots. Uh, they only last a few seconds. 
and they intersplice it with actual shark footage. So they did a really good job with editing so that you don't you don't see a lot of the seams of, of Bruce that much. No, and Spielberg was smart. He made cuts, like hard cuts, like not like fade transitions, pan out zooms. It made it easier to cut. So like when a scene ends, it's somewhat abrupt, but that's really helpful for in editing. Yes. Well, to your point, Russell Spielberg tried to leave. He he got vetoed. Uh, the studio would not release him from his contract. He tried to go and do another movie. The studio said, nope, you are stuck, sir. <laughs> um, uh, he said that Jaws, the success that he had on Jaws set up him and his career path to go the rest of the way. So another one of those mistakes that ended up being a total blessing. But yeah. uh, digressing to his Hitchcockian influence is when you see that scene in the beach where everybody's fleeing the water after the Kittner kid is eaten, I mean, the panic of everybody leaving mm-hmm. that low camera angle reminded me of the birds and the panic of the the crowd. Oh yes. And yeah. another Hitchcock influence is when Brody's face is just horrified after Alex Kittner is attacked, and the the film zooms very slowly in on Brody's face, but the background zooms away way faster, and that's very that's very indicative of like what they had done in uh, Vertigo, when mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart's hanging off the roof edge and. I love that shot. It's it's just um, it shows such a oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and that that's another very great scene that Spielberg did because he builds the tension so much because Brody's obviously sitting there. He's he's you know he's not focusing on any of the conversation around him or the people coming up to him. He's focused out on the people on the water. And people keep getting into his way and interrupting him. And then you hear a girl screaming, but she's just messing around with her boyfriend. And the tension builds up so much. And then, you know, the the boy gets killed and you get that pull zoom. And it just is like, boom, it just takes the air completely out of him. And that's just an iconic shot. I mean, I think most people associate that kind of shot with this film. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, even regular non-action shots are really masterfully staged and framed. Uh, when the mayor's talking to Hooper and Brody, how how they position themselves between each other, like they're kind of get like the mayor will be between them, the camera's coming from behind them. It's like they're ganging up on him, and then like yep. they think they get the upper hand, and as they kind of walk, but then they don't have the tooth because it fell out, and so they're shifting themselves as the dialogue moves. It's really really smart. They didn't just send the mm-hmm. actors out there with the parts. Spielberg really told them like, I need you to step here, and the camera's going to yeah, be here. Yeah, he is he is a master with blocking. And it's not just the action scenes. It's just amazing. Like the that like we talked about this. You can appreciate this movie at different levels. I actually see how it could be nominated for a best film and legitimately, you know, best director as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, I find this more enjoyable than <laughs> um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I rated highly, by the way. <laughs> but that movie is not very pretty. In fairness, like as far as direction goes, Milos Forman told a good story, but it's not a pretty movie i think the direction in this is way more skillful so i can only say it because we've both reviewed them here in the same year so um <laughs> there's i i could see it either way jaws is the summer blockbuster it's a tough one to get a nomination out of and it's stunning that it got as many as it did yeah yeah no you're right you're right so 25 percent of the movie is filmed from the water level 
to provide the viewers with that like low perspective as if they were treading water. And mm -hmm. uh, Spielberg said, I got a lot of bang for my buck out of the horizon because my shark didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, were there any other magical moments that Spielberg brought to this, whether it be in the cinematography or the storytelling or the pacing of these things? I think just, again, with the little things that he tends to do, he's much more of a show don't tell. So when Quint says just a simple line when they're tying barrels to the shark and says, not with three, he can't as far as going underwater. And then the barrels immediately go underwater and they just lose him. It's not even for a second or two. It's for a solid 30 some seconds where there's just quiet around them. And he just constantly does things. You, you mentioned the dock ripping these little right moments that you just get correct show so much power and it you could say yeah this beast can do x and y and it could swallow whatever but he's showing us he's showing us what it can do even if it's as subtle as a fast moving barrel or three what are they 300 pounds or something like that so it's like 900 some odd pounds that are tied to him that he's just dragging under the water with nothing he takes a chunk out of the boat and mythbusters actually did a bunch of these these experiments later on they're like yeah this a lot of this as far as the great white uh, was concerned was actually correct yeah i think the, i think the only one that they de that they debunked was the the huge explosion with the uh the air tank they said it, it could explode but not to the the measure that they show in the film yeah it wouldn't work yeah yeah that's uh I prefer, I still prefer the giant blow up there. Uh, the uh, the <laughs> author from the book, who I just read a second ago, I'm trying to find it. Peter Benchley? Yeah. Peter Benchley was on the set and was upset by what Spielberg was doing with his book there at the end. And he didn't like the blowing up of the shark and he had to get removed from from the set and stuff like that. So uh, he, he said, blowing up the shark is unrealistic. And to your point, Lindsay, yes, it is unrealistic, but it's awesome. <laughs> It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so gratifying. It was very strange, though. In the book, the shark the shark has just taken enough harpoon damage and it bleeds out as it's like the dorsal fin is coming at Brody and then it just like putters out and dies, which yeah. it's, it's good. But I mean, that's nowhere near as good as... Yes, yeah, it's, it's not as good as like the shark blowing up. This was a decade prior, but I really felt like it was Legend of Zelda music that played as soon as the shark was blown up. It sounded like something directly from that. I'd love to see if that influenced Nintendo at all. Like John Williams, are you influencing? Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, what did you think about where they chose to see, shoot this movie in Martha's Vineyard? I think, it, I think the setting perfect. You know, it had that small island feel uh, where everybody knows everybody and everyone is in everybody's business. Um, a place where, you know, the bureaucracy could pull these kind of strings and it's just kind of the way it's always been done. And you've got, you know, the, the salty sea captains. Um, I especially love that dock scene where all the different fishermen are showing up to go out to try and catch the shark and you get all these different kinds of characters. So I, I, I thought the setting was, was perfect, a perfect choice. Yeah. That was a fun scene where it was almost like the town yokels and stuff. Like what's he doing? They're He's throwing charming. dynamite and all this yeah. stuff. <laughs> Didn't understand what chum was. <laughs> yeah. 
Chad, what did you think about the environment of this movie? It's the same thing as Wreck for me, where I appreciate that it, it really wasn't a set. It was a place. So practical effects are always going to win me over. Practical environment. I, I really appreciate them doing this. And I kind of forgot. Yeah, I knew in the back of my mind it was 1975, but I just forget the opening somehow of how hippie-ish this was. And so that that was a little bit jarring. It's been a couple years since I'd watched this, but yeah, I, I forget the 70s type environments as well. So part of this was arguing against late stage capitalism, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was interesting. There was a lot of pressure to shoot in the Caribbean uh, or on a lot. And I like that Steve Spielberg put it here because it was where the story lived that 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 mm-hmm. panic of the small town they showed you the quaintness of it they sh- they showed you the political side of it it all felt very believable and a, mm-hmm. and i mean believable in a way that i think a lot of movies ask you to suspend belief and still have a fun time the fact that they nailed that believability so much i think it's a big part when you're trying to scare somebody i think it matters a lot more you know if you're making a comedy you can probably kind of overstep some of those things and whatnot but I mean, yeah when you're trying to scare somebody Making it a believable threat is a really important thing, and they did such a good job of that. Yes, they did. One fun story about that was Quint's boathouse was built in Martha's Vineyard on an abandoned lot. The city council made the production crew agree to demolish it after filming and then replace everything in the building exactly the way it had been. (laughs) Because they were kind of trying to be difficult with the movie, but they did it. What did you think about the wardrobes? Chad, you said it was a bit hippie-ish in the beginning, but I actually kind of thought for the most part, there's something timeless about some of this. Like, I, I, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel dated to me. Yeah, past that opening scene, this is kind of what I struggled with. Okay, it almost stops being 70-ish. And maybe it's, I, I needed to see shorter swimsuits on the guys or something. Like, you know, <laughs> the, the James Bond classic shot or... I, it oh, do you need didn't... a blue terry cloth onesie like Bond has in Goldfinger? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Um, yeah, I just, it felt normal. And you're right. Uh, it feels timeless past past the point of there's some language in there that's just not used. The bad hat, Harry, that is not a phrase that's in our lexicon now. But, but past that, yeah, it, it does. It feels timeless. Yeah. Lindsay, what do you think about the uh, wardrobe? Um, I thought it was great. Uh, I, I very much agree that it was timeless. I mean, you see some 70s fashion, but really a lot of 70s fashion has never gone out of style. People still wear bell bottoms. They still wear uh, certain 70s fashions, even to this day. So it doesn't seem that foreign when you watch the film. Of course, some of the hairstyles <laughs> are a little different, but but no, I I, I I don't pick out anything that that seems very dated that would date this film. I I, th- I agree that it's it's very timeless, especially when it comes to the costuming, and just even just the the, the three mains when they're on the boat. I mean, it's just it's jeans and t-shirts, and you know, it's very simple. I think if they want. Dreyfus to come off as more scholarly maybe and I thought his beard was a bit wild that was like one of my only like <laughs> comments on here like Quint Quint's a little bit like because he has like this super high-tech boat and mm-hmm. like 
I, there was part of me that said like this beard doesn't really fit him <laughs> but that that was my only thing that i could pick apart there so i thought how extremely sweaty he got after that autopsy and needing to put water on his face that was a bit much <laughs> well it's like I don't know how often he does autopsies like that. I mean, I guess he cuts open fish, but like this is a shark bite victim. And and I love his reaction when they pull out this small box. He was probably expecting like them to pull out, you know, a stretcher or something like that. And they pull out this tiny box and he's like, that's it. (laughs) That's all that's left. Also, keep in mind, he got mad, too, because they said that, you know, this was a boat. That hit, yeah. that hit the body and like he's mad because he sees a cover-up occurring mm-hmm. so i mean there's there's anger building in him too so oh, i actually yes. kind of like dreyfus's whole performance on that scene so now we talked a lot about special effects already but are there any other like uh moments or ambiance or any f- other interesting things we haven't gotten to because it's a very effects laden movie chad do you want to start this one off yeah when they find christie's body it it didn't work they tried a fake dummy or something like that and it just didn't work so once again the best effects are practical effects so they buried a cast member a female cast member up to her arm and just had her arm sticking out and i forget what they were doing it's probably unethical now but there was some kind of agitation of the crabs to get them to congregate i think it was hot coffee or something like yes okay yeah yeah pita is upset (laughs) it's it's before a certain date so instead of like saying no animals were harmed in this film it's like oh yeah we hurt animals (laughs) yeah yeah we actually murdered that dog but uh yeah so doing things like that i appreciate of it's not a fake looking arm or anything like that yeah it's not the jurassic park arm that they made the mistake on later (laughs) (laughs) lindsay what about you are there any other fun uh special effects lighting whether it be probably my favorite part of the film is the USS Indianapolis speech. And I think that is the moment where we really see who Quint is and the performance that, that Robert Shaw gave watching him give that, that monologue. I mean, I'm also an actor and that's, that scene made me want to be an actor. Um, Just the way he delivers it. He rarely, if you watch it, he rarely blinks during the entire thing. And just the cadence that he uses. And even though it's it's a very, very serious story that he's telling, he goes back and forth between kind of glibness and then very deadly serious where he's leaning forward and then he's leaning back. And, and you know, the speed at which he gives, gives the lines. It's one of the more impactful monologues, I think, in, in cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- it's interesting how Dreyfus's face goes completely like yes. uh, focused. Like it's it's very 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 focused on mm-hmm. on Quint's face as he's having this emotionally scarring memory come back to him. Mm-hmm. And it explains so much about his character because you know when they go to his shanty, you know he he's a shark hunter. It's like his mission in life is to kill sharks because of this incident that happened to him. And this, and Jaws is the Moby Dick to his Captain Ahab, you know, it's like his, his, his final match. If he can, if he can get this shark, then he will finally have vindication for, for that experience that he went through. It's funny that you mentioned 
Moby Dick and Whale because we almost <laughs> didn't get Spielberg, which would have been, I think, tragic. This movie wouldn't probably be anything without him. But uh, the original director was going to be Dick Richards, but he was fired after a meeting with producers and studio executives where he said the opening shot would have a camera coming out of the water to show the town uh, and then the whale. And um, <laughs> and then like the producers were like, we're agitated with him anyway, but like, they're like, did you say whale? Like, we're not making Moby Dick here. And so and then it's like, they fired him and said, we're getting somebody who knows the difference in a whale and a shark, which luckily, I don't know if the, it was ever mentioned, but I guess they asked Spielberg, it's like, Okay, so it's great. Do you know the difference in a whale and a shark? I do. Yes. All right. Job's yours. You're hired. Well, they, they wanted Quint actually watching Moby Dick, but Gregory Peck wouldn't give up the rights because he hated his performance in it. That's right. Now, sometimes we get a little bit stalled out on the soundtrack, but this is this one is an amazing score. Lindsay, what do you think about John Williams's score for Jaws? It's great. I mean, the simplicity of, you know... That just dun dun, and that also becomes another signifier for the shark. You know, when you're not seeing the shark, you hear that music, and it just it just brings in this sense of dread, like oh no, the shark is here. And also, you know, when they're out on the sea, you get this kind of more action adventure part of the score when they're chasing him down after they've shot him with the barrels. But anyone, even even people who have not seen this movie know that they know what that means they know what it is they've heard it before that riff is amazing the score is so much even though beyond that like i i popped in the uh the whole score and listened to the whole thing and i was amazed at how good all the other stuff was too Mm -hmm. yes Um, spielberg is playing the clarinet on one of those (laughs) i did not know that yeah i I actually think this is one of the failures of Spielberg because he didn't appreciate Williams. When Williams brought this score to him, he laughed at him and said, that's cute, John. Where's the real soundtrack? And that's just a huge miss on Spielberg's part. And I think obviously he appreciates it now. Mm-hmm. But I just, I remember hearing that as a kid and it just immediately sunk into me. So I, I don't understand how Spielberg missed that one. It's probably the most menacing riff that I can think of. I mean, maybe Michael Myers is, or I mean, John Carpenter's um, Halloween. That like, mm-hmm. like, but like, this is this might even be more chilling than that. Imperial March. Uh, also, I mean, John Williams, but yeah, I was gonna say John Williams as well. But John Williams and Spielberg work together again so much over the future. It's a it's a formula mm-hmm. that works. The two have it. They have it. They know what they know what they're doing there. So, but uh, th- later in the movie, though, as you mentioned, as the movie shifts into an adventure, I was amazed at how much exuberant and yes. lively mm-hmm. like music there was. It was like an old pirate movie with swashbuckling mm-hmm. or something like that, and it was really uh, lively. And I even sit there and go, like, I'm starting to see why AFI calls the score the number six score because it's so much more than that part that like that is infamous and we all know. Yes. With that build up and that crescendo, but on the other hand. It's solid all the way through, and that's pretty cool. So, Yeah, you get that flighty, almost Hans Zimmer-esque score. You know, Lindsay mentioned the barrels, and there's just this racing woodwinds that comes in and just conjures up that action and adventure. It makes you so much more scared. It, it, it is mysterious and menacing 
and those scenes like when Hooper's about to jump into the water to check out Ben Gardner's boat and stuff like that, you feel very uneasy. Yes, it's good lighting. Yes, it's it's you're jumping in possibly shark infected waters. That's dumb. But I mean, it, it, it really comes to you milk it for everything that it's got by by that score. They had so many of those, just the individual shots of people floating, which is just a benign shot. But given the context and the tension of this movie, when you're cutting to person in raft, a lady on like an inflatable, kids surfing, dog swimming, and just panning back and forth, it's almost like paranormal activity where you're scanning the rooms. You're waiting for something bad to happen to someone, and it's just a benign picture. But with John Williams... It's so much more. Yes. All right. Do you guys want to hand out some awards? Love to. All right. MVP, Lindsay. I'd say the MP- MVP for me is uh, Robert Shaw. Just his impor- his performance is incredible. There, it's flawless, in my opinion. Great pick. Yep. That Indianapolis scene is amazing. Oh my so. gosh. And even and sorry. And even his first speech when we first meet him, you know, where he's got the nails down the chalkboard. You know, we know right away who this person is by what he says and oh, yeah. the way that the, and the way that the town reacts to him. I think you all know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you all know me. He, he needed a Dos Equis because at that point he's the most interesting person on the island. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Chad, MVP. Steven Spielberg for me. I, his inexperience caused a ton of problems, but it also allowed him to show his genius and his creativity, his casting, his direction for the less is more. I, I think if Bruce is more visible, you wind up with Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm with you on this one. Uh, Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg is one of, he's on my Mount Rushmore's of directors. I just, I love him. I like how he talks about the enthusiasm of his movies and uh, his vision and his ability to bring something through in every aspect of the movie. And in a way, this is his first real, real big masterpiece. And, and I have not seen Duel, though, to Lindsay's point, though. So I, uh, I guess he could have. Very, been... very good movie. Yeah. Um, but he does it every top to bottom here. So, yep. And he's channeling another guy I like a lot, which is Hitchcock in this. And I mean, Best supporting actor, Lindsay. I would say Roy Scheider. One of another one of my favorite moments in the movie. I mean, you you see his character arc throughout the film. I mean, he's he's escaped from New York being a cop there because of all the crime and everything. He thinks he's coming to this quiet, quaint little town where he just has to focus on these small town issues of people parking in front of people's businesses and and the town karate class kids chopping down the fences. Think they he thought those were going to be his biggest problems, you know. And he's a little clumsy. He's a little unsure of himself. Um, he just he just wants some peace. And one of my favorite parts that's so subtle with him is during the scar comparison scene, where he just there, you know, Brody and Quint and Quint are sharing their, <laughs> you know, very deep scars from sharks and things like that, and. He, it pans over to him and he just kind of lifts up his shirt and looks at what it's probably an appendix scar. It was. Yeah. Yes. And he just, he just puts it down because he's still so unsure of himself and, and doesn't feel up to snuff. But, you know, by the end of the film, you know, he's, he's the hero. Yeah. And he's very likable too. Mm-hmm. I he mean, is. yeah, you have to like him to make this movie work. And boy, mm-hmm. between Spielberg's framing of him and, and his performance, very likable character. Yes, he is. Chad, best supporting. 
For all the li- reasons Lindsay picked him as MVP, I think it has to be Robert Shaw as Quint. For me, uh, he's just a mesmerizing character. He really embodies this old curmudgeon fisherman who's just out for that one last big catch. He, he lives for the danger. So, yeah, Robert Shaw. Yep. I like Robert Shaw as well. And uh, you guys have covered so much, and I'm just going to throw one thing we haven't talked about. I like the character uh, of Quint realizing that he's out of his element, and he looks over to Hooper before they give the cage the thing, and he's like, he's gained respect for Hooper through that process. And Mm -hmm. he then says, "Uh, so Hooper, what do these high-tech things do? And I, I like that, though, because it's kind of funny, yes, because the fisherman realizes he's out of his element, but I also like it's a galvanizing moment that night that they're on the Indianapolis, they all come together. And so mm-hmm. um, you're starting to see them have this camaraderie at, yes. at sea. And so um, so much has been covered about him. Another, and like through what you guys were saying, I just want to throw that one more log on the fire as I go with Robert Shaw as well. Hidden Jim, Lindsay. Um, there's a couple little shots that I think are, are underappreciated. Um, the first one is when they're embarking for the first time out on the Orca and we get that shot through Quint's, um, window of his shack through the giant great white jaws that he's got there. I I love that shot. Um, And also when the boat is sinking and Robert and Quint finally realizes, you know, his methods are not working and we hear a little bit of the ditty of farewell and adieu to fair Spanish ladies. We kind of hear that kind of Peter off softly and he looks over and he grabs and he sees the life jackets and then he throws, he throws one to, to Brody and one to Hooper, but not one to himself because of course he said he'd never put on a life jacket again. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what? I remember thinking it's like they only had two life jackets, but I, yeah, you're right. I, that's a really good thing to point out. I'm glad you called that out. Yeah. I never noticed that. <laughs> Chad, Hidden Gem. Susan Backlany, who played Christy. She's the first shark victim. And it's just incredible reading about what she was put through. It was like three three days of essentially trying to drown her. She had two 300-pound weights on each, each side of her that people would pull. And they wouldn't tell her when they were going to pull her. So she... It would look realistic that she's panicking. And then her screams, you know, we mentioned she's a stunt woman, but how they got the, the screams and the drowning effect was they essentially waterboarded her. Yes. <laughs> they, Poor woman. They, they tilted her head up next to a microphone and poured water down it so she would sound like she was drowning. So kudos to Susan Backlany uh, for everything that she contributed to this movie. Her screams in the beginning... If they don't work, if they seem too fakey, could wind up being going the B movie route. But she really put the terror into it. Yeah, that that opening scene is is amazingly done because it sets the tone for the whole film. And it's just seeing her being drugged around by something we don't know what is is just terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So my hidden gem's gonna be. The TV newsman on the beach. This is Peter yes. Benchley, the author of the book. A grossly inferior book from what it sounds like, but it's still the author of the book, and that's a fun thing to do to stick him in the movie. Oh, yeah. Recast. Lindsay, this is a great cast, but if you have to, and, oh re- and you have to, who are you recasting and who are you putting in their place? This was, this was a question I really struggled with, and I, 
I I don't think I could replace anybody, especially the main three, because they worked no. so well together. Yeah, I, I, t I take the cop out and I go down the cast list sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably maybe probably uh, maybe the guy that's chasing after Chrissy, because he's kind of a doofus. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great call. You know, I mean, uh, kudos to him for being a drunk idiot because it probably saved his life. But, <laughs> but I don't know. He, the way he kind of um, is just kind of a, an, an idiot and a little douchey when he's talking to Brody on the beach always bothered me a little bit. Not because it was it was poorly performed, but he was just kind of a douchey character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for the anchor jacket and Mayor Vaughn, I mean, we would probably hate him more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay does not like his face. <laughs> yeah, it's very punchable. Very punchable. Um, Chad, recast if you had to. I don't think I'm going to do it, but I kind of want to see Norm MacDonald in the Robert Shaw role. Oh like his <laughs> I, I feel like that would be interesting. But not, for a serious casting, uh, Lee Farrow's Mrs. Kittner, I, I actually felt like she was the weak point. I felt like the smack that got in the movie was too light for hey you knew about a shark so you would have kept shooting more slap scenes i would have left in a much harder one yeah and as far as recasting i think i would have gone with someone a little younger looking so at this time she would have been about 26 you could play it off maybe a little more but kirstie alley okay yeah yep and uh i'm gonna go I regret my decision now that you've said all this wonderful stuff about her, but I chose Susan Backline. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's difficult to recast anybody in this, but we play the game to play the game. I'm putting Karen Allen in there at the beginning. Okay. Because right. I think we would like her very much at the fire scene and like we would be instantly magnetized to her and be like, oh, she's going to be our protagonist. And and then uh, turns out she will not be. <laughs> she's Drew Barrymore in Scream. Yeah, ex exactly. So... Um, she's not the big name that she would later go on to be uh, at this point. She's 24 years old, but I think that's probably about the right age. So yeah, I'm looking for more misdirection of just like, oh, this is a big character. And uh, she has this, I'm a fan of hers. So, uh, but uh, she, you know, she just has this magnetic quality that would make you really shocked when uh, she's drowning later. So, or being eaten. Both. <laughs> best shot, Lindsay. I think the best shot is um, the pole zoom shot for me yeah because it's it's so dynamic and it's so iconic for this movie and it just shows the realization on his face of what he has just saw just seen happen in front of him that's mine as well it's it's called the jealous shot mm -hmm. <laughs> um and uh it's hard not to pick it because it's just so amazing. It's forward zoom and reverse tracking is apparently mm -hmm. how they accomplish this but uh it's disorienting and it it definitely has a frightening feel to it. Chad, is this yours as well, or are you going in another direction? It's not. I'm such a simple man. But <laughs> I, I like the opening shot with the tracking through the seaweed as the theme plays. I, I feel like nowadays we would get that entirely CGI, and I just miss moments like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know one that you see a lot and nobody mentioned it was uh, when Brody's chumming the water and the, the shark surfaces over his shoulder there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The framing on that's really nice. Uh, best scene, Lindsay. It's the the USS Indianapolis speech for me. And <laughs> I've already said my reasons why. 
but I think that's really where the the three characters gain a lot of respect for each other and understanding for each other. And I also think it elevates the film quite a bit. Yes. Yes, it does. Chad, what about you? Show me the way to go. <laughs> I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I, I love the drinking scene above the orca. And it's just this calm before everything hits 100 miles per hour. So the camaraderie and the final respect for all of them. Love it. Yep, that's. I'm gonna go with a different direction just for the sake of variety. I like I like what you guys are, but I'm gonna go with blowing up a shark. <laughs> 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 um, so I I too am a simple man, Chad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so glad that was changed. <laughs> Change one thing, Lindsay. Oh, oof. these are all so hard to answer because, like I said, this is my favorite film of all time. If I had to change one thing, um, I would probably agree with Spielberg about the the Ben Gardner jump scare, that that kind of took the air out of the the first time you see Jaws a little bit. Um, so I I think I would have played that down a little bit more, so you you can keep that punch for when you first see Jaws pop out of the water. Agreed. That's a great choice. Yeah, Chad, what about you? What's your change one thing? I don't really like the Michael attack scene. I feel like it's odd, and I would have rather had another throwaway death of anonymous tourists than Michael being attacked and living. I don't even know that we needed another attack right there at all, I guess for the plot purposes, yes. But uh, kill someone, don't just have Michael be in shock. Well, they did get (laughs) the guy who was in the rowboat. Like, hey, you boys need some help with your boat? Like, that guy got eaten. (laughs) Yeah, but it was focused on Michael. Like, him being there ruined shark killing things. Killing oh, man. things. I thought that was a great <laughs> overhead shot, too, because we still haven't really gotten a good look at the shark. And this is, the this is like, 25% of the shark, as you see yeah. it, like, coming up from underneath. And, the you know, the, the bad-looking mechanical shark doesn't look that bad there. So, I mean... And I also think it makes it a lot more personal for Brody. Yeah. Yeah. See, I... I I have a thing. Podcast <laughs> listeners will know I hate child actors. You do. Like, you do. It's it is like, it is a hard thing for him to get around. Kudos to Alex who died without fanfare. He just <laughs> bloody rush off of a raft. Good job, Alex Kenter. I like you, Michael. You know you can go away. Oh man, <laughs> there's my hot take too. Yeah, well, <laughs> always, the kid always, always hard on the kid actors. Um. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, uh, and then the other thing I really liked about that, though, going back is, uh, you know, I liked it when um, his wife, Ellen, was saying, like, you know, like, he's like, take him home. She goes, you know, back to the city. And he's like, no, like, we're staying. And mm-hmm. that's that's such a nice, powerful moment for the characters. So if you don't have that, then you can't have that. Uh, he could tell her to go home. It's fine. Eliminate the kid. The kid added nothing. Mm. <laughs> Are, do you hate the kid? Do you do you hate the wonderful scene that Lindsay mentioned before, like where the boy was making the same faces as his father? I mean, it's a two-hour movie. You could edit that. I'd be fine. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, uh, fine. What are you changing that we can? I, my, oh, that's true. That's true. My my change one thing is the mechanical shark. Even though they cost two hundred and fifty dollars a pop, they don't look good even just sitting there. <laughs> Sharks have like a membrane that like goes over their eye, like like when they bite, and 
you know, it's just sitting there. They look like buttons sewed on and like a, a doll and stuff like that. There's a little bit of animatonical kind of understanding of what a shark is that I don't think they did a very good job of doing their homework to try and get it to do some of that. Now, I'm not a machinist, but uh, again, look at Spielberg and Jurassic Park. Um, that's a machine. That's not CGI. They, they figured it out there. So 21 years later. Yes, that's fair. I mean, we're going to back to the future this, I guess. It's true. It's true. But I mean, again, Star Wars, had some very, Star Wars had some amazing effects in it and not even a lot of budget to do some of that stuff with. And Alien, you know, we, we, we talked, we've talked about a lot of other movies and stuff that we've done in the past. You don't have to hold it to 1990, you know, three standards with Jurassic Park. I mean, there were really good practical effects done in the 70s, and this was not one of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually I like the shark. I think it I think you are right. You know, the 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 membrane doesn't come over the eyes and also, you know, when a shark, especially a great white shark bites, you know, you get that big gum action when they when they take a bite, you know, the teeth kind of express themselves and you see a lot of their gum that they didn't get down. But a few of the shots, I mean, when you look at a shark, you know, it, it doesn't have facial expressions or anything like that. Like he says in his speech, it, it, it looks like it doesn't even seem to be living. So I think I think it holds up in, in most of the shots, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and we talked about discretion of how to use it was mm -hmm. key. Lindsay, what is your best quote of the movie? There's so many good quotes, just little throwaway lines. But I, I love Quint when he's when they're packing up to get ready and he's just he's just shouting different things, you know. And at one point he does his little limerick about um, is it Mary Lee? Here lies the body of Mary Lee, died at the age of 103. For 15 years, she kept her virginity. Not a bad record for this vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Chad, what's your best quote? I like Brody's that's some bad hat Harry and especially especially because that's now a production studio it's Brian Singer's for X-Men and uh, also produced TV shows like House and Trick or Treat the movie so if you see that at the end of the movie or TV show you're watching that's where this came from wow I was prepared to have to have a second option on this one but I guess I have to pick you're gonna need a bigger boat <laughs> ad-libbed <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I was prepared to say, um, I really like it when Hooper says, um, it's odd that a, a guy who doesn't like the water lives on an island, and Brody just says, it's only an island if you look at it from the water. <laughs> yeah, but Hooper looks at him like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, he does. <laughs> it's still an island. Yeah. Now, before we rate this, Lindsay... Tell us one more time where we can hear more from you if we enjoyed this episode here. Uh, you can look up my YouTube channel. It's Lindsay Washburn. That's Lindsay with an A, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter, Lindsay Washburn. And you can see what I'm working on and, and all, all that different kind of stuff. And on my YouTube channel, I do just regular movie reviews of things that have come out. And I also talk about my extensive VHS collection, a lot of which include very... Terrible, terrible movies that you've probably never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, definitely check it out. I have enjoyed a number of her videos as well. I, I like your top five movies by year that you do. Yes, I'm, I've got, um, I've got uh, 1982 in the can right now that I've 
starting to edit and man, it is really hard to narrow down the eighties. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yep. It's uh and I, I'm a sucker for countdowns. Chad will tell you. <laughs> countdowns and lists. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. it's true. So on a five star scale, the movie Jaws, Lindsay, what would you give this movie? Well, it's a five. <laughs> I think we saw this coming. Yes. I think we saw this coming. All right. And Chad, what about you? What do you give this movie on a five star scale? Yeah, one of the best thrillers of all time, five stars. I think this might be the third time in show history. It's straight fives. Nice. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with a five as well. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. To quote uh, Hooper, you know, the you're dealing with is a perfect engine, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and pick a movie for next time, Chad. What do you say? Absolutely, can't wait. It's Christmas time. Your favorite time of the year, isn't it? It is not, sir. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to try and make it that way with some of these wonderful Christmas movies. So option number one, Disney's A Christmas Carol from 2009. A foul-tempered, misogynistic miser is shown the error of his ways in a single night through visits of a number of spirits, some kindly and jolly, and some not so much. Uh, Humbug. Yeah. Okay. I'm guessing we're not going to get that one selected from you then. (laughs) Um, Option two, The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993. Jack Skellington's King of Halloween Town discovers Christmas Town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Mm. Option three, Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. When a nice old man who claims to be Santa Claus is institutionalized as being insane, a young lawyer decides to defend him, arguing in the court that he's the real thing. Ah, that's a tough one for someone that hates Christmas movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's the obvious choice. Nightmare Before Christmas. Watch it every year with my daughter. Love it. All right. We will do the Nightmare Before Christmas when we come back. And Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're a wonderful guest. Oh, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. It was a good time. Absolutely. Yes. And to all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro and email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And we have a Patreon page if should you want to contribute to the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chat. No, what you've done is taken God's oldest killing machine and given it will and desire. What you've done is knocked us all the way to the bottom of the food chain. It's not a great leap forward in my book.